This morning's sermon text comes from the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Let us hear the reading of God's holy word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is, not, is no trouble to me and, it, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Well, Happy New Year. It's hard to believe we are now in 2023. That year just flew by. And with the new year comes the resolve to live a better life. In fact, this resolve is natural to us because there is an innate desire within all of us to live a better life than the one that we have been living. Why is that? Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Why we're restless about the life that we're currently living? And I think the answer is, is because God has placed eternity in the heart of all of us. According to Ecclesiastes 3.11, 
it says that God has put eternity into man's heart. He has placed within us a desire to long for a life beyond the life we are currently living. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Now, the danger is to hold that longing in a sinful way, in a way that takes what God has given to us, that good and necessary longing that he's placed in our heart, and defile it by using it for our own desires and not his. You see that resolve to have a better life? It's not wrong. It's not wrong for us to desire something more than we have now. In fact, it's natural. Because there is a life that we're longing for if we're looking for a life that is pointed heavenwardly, right? That is why it can't be wrong if we desire something more and our aim and our eye is on the right prize. As long as that life is lived to glorify God. That's the life we need to hold on to. A life that has its eye on the upward prize. Not here on the earth for temporal gains, but for eternal gains. So I ask you, what life do you hope to attain in this new year? In our text, we find three possible answers. The first being a life of confidence. The second a life of gain, and third, a life of perfection. So let's look at the first possible answer, a life of confidence. We all want that, I think. I think it's natural for us to want to be okay with how things are in the world and be confident with our place in the world. But for this life to be attained, we must know where it truly is found, where confidence is truly found. In order to see this clearly, we must know the dangers that lurk all around us that encourage a confidence that is both sinful and misplaced. That's the danger when we make resolutions in the new year. Are those resolutions sinful and misplaced? Or are they really there to teach us how to glorify God? That's what we hear in verse 2. Paul uses this warning to look out for dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Those are some stark words there that he's speaking about, but he's trying to get across to us the warning that there are those who are going to encourage you to have a sinful and misplaced confidence. They're waiting for you to be weak, so like dogs, they're going to jump upon you. They're going to do things to entice you to find confidence in something else than where your confidence should be. And they're going to bring about even religious things. Use religious signs, religious promises, to convince you and encourage you to place your confidence in the very thing that that sign signifies, the promise of God. And so we look that Paul is warning us, and he calls this misplaced confidence 
Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. So what is it that Paul is speaking about when he uses that term flesh? He's not simply just speaking about the body. When we think about it, we say flesh and blood, we're talking about the outward body, all of us, right? Paul does use that context many places. He uses it here, but he moves it. He progresses it to something that we're to understand in order to know what confidence in the flesh is. So when Paul's speaking about the flesh, he's not simply speaking about the body. He's speaking in varying degrees about any action or doing of ours that is not fully dependent upon the Spirit of God, which does not lead to glorying in Christ Jesus. He's speaking about where confidence in one's relationship with God is found. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul wants us to see is that confidence in our relationship with God, even in the most religious form, is misplaced, if not fully dependent upon the Spirit of God. If it's not dependent upon the Spirit of God, then it's not from God. It's from you. And if it's from you, then you have placed confidence in the flesh. Watch how Paul develops this idea of confidence in the flesh in verses 4 through 6. Paul writes that though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. What Paul is doing there is he's focusing on both a pedigree that is outward and inward in nature and clearly one that is religious through and through. Make no mistake about it. Paul had all the bona fides to give him confidence in his relationship with God. He checked the boxes, every one of them. Every one of them that all those that he had grown up with, wanted, needed, in order to have a right relationship with God. But what does he say about them? He counts all of those bona fides as rubbish. As rubbish. Why is that? Because they were actions of his own that led to confidence in the flesh and not confidence in Christ when it came to his relationship with God. Paul is telling us that confidence cannot be found in us. It is found in Christ only, only from start to finish. Do you believe that? Have you simply just begin your life in relationship with God, having confidence in Christ, but now believing that you've arrived 
You no longer have confidence in Christ that he can bring you until the end. And so you try to do what's best for yourself, and you don't depend upon the Holy Spirit. Paul warns us against that. Paul warns us against that. And he tells us that the confidence that we are to seek, the life of confidence that we are to seek, it is only in Christ from start to finish. So why does that matter? Should it not be enough to have confidence in some degree, no matter where it's found? Here's why it matters. First, our relationship with God matters. It is more important than any other relationship than we have in this life. Why is that? Why do we think that's the case? That our relationship with God is more important than the relationship we have with our children. The relationship that we have with God is more important than we have with our spouse, with our parents, with our friends, with our workers, wherever you are. There is no greater, more important relationship than the relationship that you have with God. And that's because we were made to worship him. That's what he says in verse 3. Relationship is about our worship with God. Our relationship with God is centered upon our worship with him and to him and for him. We were made in his image to worship him in holiness and righteousness. But we can't worship him in confidence when we're not in a right relationship with him. For we all have entered into this world in a relationship with God whether we want to acknowledge it or not. That's sobering. And sadly, that relationship is adversarial from the start. It's adversarial from the start. We were enemies to God. We were dead in our sin and our trespasses, alienated from our creator. We are not right with him. So how can we have confidence, if that's true, how can we have confidence in this life knowing that our relationship is broken with our Creator? The second reason why it matters is that our bona fides will never be good enough to make us right with God. Never. Paul knew that, and we need to know that. No matter how good of a Christian we are, or aren't, we can never reconcile ourselves to God apart from Christ Jesus. Our bona fides are rubbish. They are trash, if not fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and do not glorify Christ from start to finish. Whatever our pedigree is, we are to put no confidence in it. If we put confidence in it, we're putting confidence in the flesh. We're putting confidence in our efforts, in our works, in our doings, apart from Christ. For it will not heal our relationship with God. It just won't. No matter how hard we try, we of ourselves, apart from Christ, cannot heal our relationship with God. 
The life of confidence is a life lived having no confidence in oneself. But yet, it is a life that attains all confidence. That's the glorious message of the gospel. Is have no confidence in yourself in order to attain all confidence in Christ. In Christ. This glorious message of the gospel confronts all of our so-called wisdom and levels it into rubbish. It truly does. That's what Paul was saying. Look at all my bona fides. At the value of who Christ is, they're rubbish. They're rubbish. For a life of confidence is a life depending upon the Spirit and trusting in Jesus. Is that the type of life you seek? Have you ever come face to face with the reality that you're trusting in the flesh and not in God? I've been tried in that area often. But one moment in my life has truly impacted me that I will never forget. That's when I was in high school and I was coming into my own as a singer. I was receiving daily praise, winning all kind of awards. And at first, I was truly humbled by all of this recognition and gave God the glory. I was mindful that his, that it was a gift from him. And I didn't take it for granted. But one performance, I was not acknowledging him in my selection nor in my preparation. And thankfully, by God's grace, he humbled me. In the middle of a solo performance, I forgot my words. I forgot my words. I never forgot that moment. I forgot my words. There I am, standing under the spotlight before hundreds of people, grasping for words that just would not come out. I can't offer a better example of what it means to stand in the light of your own confidence and not stand in the confidence of the light of God's grace than that moment in my life. There I was, embarrassed, ashamed, and speechless. I promise you, if you stand before God in the light of your own confidence one day, you will find just that that you will stand before a holy, righteous God, embarrassed, ashamed, and speechless. Speechless. And after that humiliating moment in my singing career, I was careful not to simply place confidence in my own abilities apart from dependence upon God. You see, singing's not a bad thing. I hope not. Or Ben and Drew probably go, you know, I'll never listen to Tim ever again. But you are sing- your singing's not a bad thing. It certainly isn't rubbish, but using the gift of song to elevate yourself is certainly rubbish. It's certainly rubbish. So whatever gifts or abilities you have, they should not be taken for granted. And they should be and not performed in your own confidence. They should not be performed 
to elevate yourself and forget God. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Are you a wise businessman? What makes you wise? Yourself or God? Are you a great teacher? What makes you great? Yourself or God? Are you a humble worker? Who makes you humble? Yourself or God? Are you an obedient child to your parents that honors them? Who's given you that opportunity? Yourself or God? And are you a gifted singer? Who's made you that? Yourself or God? Do you see the point? What it means to have confidence in the flesh? A life of confidence apart from the grace of God is rubbish. A life of confidence that's rooted in the grace of God is a life worth holding on to. So what bona fides are you trusting in to give you confidence in this life? Your goodness, your Christian zeal, your power, your wisdom, your humility, your wealth, your education, your circumstance, or maybe your relationships. Where is your confidence in this life found? For if your confidence is found in Christ, then you have gained everything needed in this life and in the next. So that brings us to our second answer. What kind of life it is that we want to attain in the new year? A life of gain? Who doesn't more, doesn't want more than what you currently have? That is a common New Year resolution, is it not? To gain where you lack. Do you want gain? To want gain, it's a good thing. As long as that gain is worth having. So let's ask ourselves, what gain is worth having? According to Paul, a gain worth having is one that comes by first losing. He lost all that he once valued so he could gain everything in Christ. Paul once valued his own works of righteousness, his own efforts of getting right with God. Look at verse 8 through 9 to see what Paul gained by losing everything. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you see there what Paul gained? He gained first the knowledge of Christ. Second, he gained a relationship with Christ. And third, he gained a righteousness that comes from God. He gained all of that by losing everything that he had that he counted as rubbish. Does that sound like a fair trade? Paul had to give up his trash 
in order to gain the eternal riches of God. That's what Paul's saying here. Doesn't seem right, but that's the gospel. That's grace. For the gospel makes it clear that we cannot attain a right relationship with God without righteousness. Paul knew this and did everything he thought he needed to do to establish his own righteousness. But yet he needed another righteousness. He needed a righteousness from God. A righteousness that comes by faith is a gain worth having. Is a gain worth having. That's what Paul is teaching us. He wants us to have a biblical accounting system where all things in our life are valued with Christ being the gold standard. He wants us to have an accounting system that shows profit in the face of loss. Where the value of all things in our life pale at the value of what we gain in Christ Jesus. Do we see that? Do we see the calculations there that Paul's doing? And to top it all off, that gain is not received by our best efforts. But it's received through faith. It's received through faith. And faith, which is a gift of God. Faith, which is a gift of God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God, by his grace, counts the righteousness of Christ as our own. And we receive that righteousness through faith. We receive our right standing by the gift that God has given. Does that blow you away? It should. That should never be a truth that you as a Christian or one that sees the beauty of Christ should ever let go of. You should hold on to that with dear life. Because what we see there, it almost seems like that's a twisted type of accounting. But actually, as an accountant or someone who works in business, that doesn't really defy the generally accepted accounting principles at all. So let me illustrate that for us so you can understand what I mean. Who's seen a profit and loss statement before? Yes? Okay. This is a report that takes a period of time and measures whether or not a business has gained or lost during that period. These reports and their overall structure are very simple to construct because they can be complicated if a business needs to see uh, different things and different needs and of their accounting or their revenues and their expenses. But in their simplest form, they have a section for all kinds of revenues and all kinds of expenses. And what you do there is you subtract the expenses from the revenues. You will either have a gain or you will have a loss. In order to reduce the loss or increase the gain, you must do two things. You must either increase the revenue or remove the expenses or do both. Do both. 
That's what Paul is describing. He is describing an increase of revenues and a removal of expenses from our righteousness, profit, and loss statement in life. Before any adjustments are made, we're showing a large deficit, an insurmountable deficit. But God comes along and radically alters the report to wipe out the deficit by increasing our revenues and removing our expenses. You see, the revenues were infinitely changed as God gave them the value of Christ's riches. doesn't matter how much revenue you had of your own. The revenue that God gave you valued was valued at the wealth of Christ. At the wealth of Christ. And so then he comes along and he removes the expenses which were not needed to attain the revenues that we once had. There's no longer a need for you to give out your effort in order to get the revenue that was sitting on your ledger to begin with. And if you get rid of those expenses that bring about that revenue, there's going to be an incredible amount of gain. There's going to be an incredible amount of gain. The increase in revenues... And the removal of these expenses in our life results in a reversal of infinite loss into infinite gain. Isn't that the type of accounting transaction we need? A transaction that removes our expenditures, that we may have endless gain? I don't know about you, but that's what I look for when I look at a profit and loss statement. I want to see something that shows an endless gain. And Paul says to you, who would be right with God in your relationship with him, you can have it. Let go of the things that you hold on to through your efforts and doing to make yourself right with God and cling to the one who is, who is the one who has made you right with God, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. So what about you? Would you rather have less profit and a greater loss to retain the value of your own efforts? Will you give up all that is precious to you that you might gain everything in Christ? Do you value your trash more than Christ Jesus? Will you hang on to your best efforts so you get the glory? Or will you throw them all away that Christ may be exalted in your life? For the life of gain is a life lived for the sake of Christ. And Christ's life is a perfect life worth having. And so now we come finally to our last answer. To our question. A life of perfection. A life of perfection is what we all want. This is what we all strive for. We all strive for it because none of us have ever obtained it. Does that surprise you? <laughs> Some days I think it's probably the case that we think we've already obtained perfection. But then many things in life come to say, nope, you sure haven't. And so Paul tells us that we will not attain it on this side of eternity. So how can perfection be achieved? First, Paul tells us in verse 12 
that we must recognize that we have not already obtained it. And we must not give up the pursuit. We must press on to make it our own. He gives us ultimate encouragement to press on to the end. Why? Because Jesus has made us his own. He has made us his own. What more encouragement do we need? We press on for the prize because we belong to Jesus. There is a certainty within that truth if you belong to Jesus. That means we will make it to the end. And how can we fail if the one who is perfect has made us his own? He's made us his own. We are assured of a perfection because of our relationship to Christ Jesus. He tells us in verse 13 that we need to forget our past. What he means here is not that we are no longer to be mindful of it, but we are to give it no weight, no bearing, or influence in our life now. That's the biblical teaching of forgetting. It isn't that you will never have knowledge of it ever again, but it's not to influence your life now. It's not to weigh it down, to hold you back. And so what should influence us now is what lies before us. We need to press on like a runner stretching out in a race to get to the finish line. The race that is behind the runner is no longer to influence how he runs the rest of the race. It's gone. We can learn from the past by acknowledging it, but let it not persuade us to live in it any longer because it only holds us back. And finally, in verse 14, the way that we are to achieve this life of perfection, we're instructed to keep our eye on the prize. The prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are to focus on progressing heavenwardly in the race because at the end of the race awaits the prize, meeting our Lord face to face. Meeting our Lord face to face, is that the prize that you want? Paul is talking about the end of our life. For perfection to Paul is obtained in full conformity to Christ Jesus when the resurrection from the dead is obtained, according to verse 11. Those who are mature, who are further along in the journey to perfection, think this way. What we've already learned by experience should not be forgotten. It should be held on to. You don't want to give away what you've already attained. You want to hold on to it knowing that it was given by God. So who here is a perfectionist? I am. How often do you allow imperfection to weigh you down to the point you become paralyzed? Because you continue to analyze over and over the smallest detail that seems to be out of place. That's called paralysis by analysis, if you didn't know it. I've faced it many times. You continue to focus on what it was done wrong instead of what was done right. And you overanalyze the smallest detail until you make the conclusion that it's not worth it anymore. Is that you 
because that's definitely me. Many times that's me. I know I'm a perfectionist. And when I can't solve my imperfections, I get frustrated many times and I get down upon myself. I then turn to frustration and anger and get self-defeated and mentally drained. And what Paul wants us to do is learn from our past but not repeat our past, not fall back into that trap. He wants us to leave it behind, that constant need to dwell upon our failures and hold on to what we've already achieved. For it's the only way forward. If we constantly overanalyze every aspect of our life, we will not press on. But be encouraged that we have a Savior who is perfect and holds us with all of our imperfections in his hand. He's waiting for us at the finish line. Do you believe that? That's the good news of the gospel, that our Lord Jesus Christ holds us, has made us his own, even with all our imperfections, that we may know our perfection, which is found in him alone.